and welcome back to Streaming Banshees, your TV book club on the internet. This is Beep. You can find me on Twitter at Beepsplain. Today's podcast is about Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha, episode five. Just a reminder, we are a rewatch podcast, so spoilers abound. We talk about each episode in the context of the entire series, so you need to have seen it before you join us. Please go watch it and then come back and play. You can find the podcast on our website, streamingbanshees.com, or on Twitter at TV Banshees. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys, you can find me on Twitter at A capital check. And we have a new guest today, new to you, not to us. Welcome, Bubs. Hello. So excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're recording from, what your deal is, all that jazz. Well, I am recording from San Diego, and I have been here since the start of the pandemic when I had to leave New York City because it was a little bit apocalyptic. <laughs> so I am currently in my parents' house, which is super fun. And yeah, <laughs> life's going really well. <laughs> Some of us have been forced into situations like douchiques <laughs> in some ways. So tell us, why do you love Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha? So I like to be surprised and Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha totally surprised me. I like to play things on in the background while I'm doing stuff, you know, like fun, light stuff that I can like kind of like look at here and there, but don't really need to pay that much attention to. So I I threw it on and I... Uh, was super shocked to find myself like six feet from the TV, like intently watching every scene and like, like, what's next? What's next? I was not expecting that. And I love when a TV show is so good that like you don't have to try to pay attention. Like your brain's like n- n- nothing else is happening today. We're just doing this. <laughs> and, and it was also like my first show that was I think that I watched that was week to week where I had to like wait for episodes. And God, that was hard. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I think it's like, it is light and airy, but it's so well done. It's an intricately woven story. Everything is, all the decisions are thoughtful. The characters are well thought out. And so it's just like such a great reminder that things don't have to be, you know, grim, dark, sad, and to be high quality things worthy of praise in critical attention, you know? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so seriously, it is a fantastic show, and I'm so happy that I watched it. (laughs) It's incredibly lifelike, and I Mm -hmm. think that's where its heart lies. Yeah, Yeah. in 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 all of its joy and all of its sorrow. Yeah, 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 and yeah, and also, Bubs, you are our first legitimate surfer that we've had on the podcast <laughs> Oppo- opposite opposite end of the Pacific Ocean, but. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know if I could consider myself a surfer now because I, while I did surf in high school, I was part of the the surf club <laughs> at my high school, and I had a a special made board that was green and it had a, a little ballerina decal on it <laughs> that I chose, <laughs> and I yeah, so I loved surfing, and then I went to college and I came mm. back for summer and I I called up my friend Nicole and I was like, oh, let's go surfing. And so we did. And I was in the water for like five minutes. And all I could imagine was like a shark swimming up beneath me and like eating me. And I had like a panic attack. <laughs> and oh. that was the last time I ever surfed. <laughs> so you you were not relaxing on your board, looking up at the sky like Chief Hall? You know what? I guess not. <laughs> but, but to my credit, not 
eight months went by and a man in San Diego was killed by a great white shark. And I feel <laughs> that deep down, I had the intuition to be like, Here, bubbles. Mm-mm. No, no. <laughs> no, no. It would have been you. <laughs> well, I'm so excited that you, you've joined us for, for podcasts on other TV shows. And one of my favorite things to do, particularly with the two of you, maybe more than any other two humans on Earth, is dissect angst mm-hmm. and point of view in a slow burn. And man, if episode five isn't a perfect one to do that, <laughs> I don't know what is. So we got a listener question and I want to read it. And then I'm going to read some excerpts from an interview with Shin Ha-Oon. And I think that they're a great way to sort of kick off the discussion for this episode. So we got a question on Twitter and we love reader questions. We hope they'll keep coming. This one is from at Winsong22. And she wrote, it puzzles me that Dushik must be aware of his own inability to be open, even as he tells Heijin to let people in. And even later, how was he planning to continue his relationship without telling her anything? Hope you will cover in your talks. Now, in the script book for Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha, there's an interview with Shin Ha-Oon, which we are going to be using the translation by the Twitter account at lovely Shin Min Ah. And we're very grateful to all of that hard work that she has volunteered to the fandom, translating the interview into English. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some different excerpts that pertain more to sort of where we are at in the story. This is quoting Shin Ha-Oon. After watching the second half of the drama, if you look at Dushik's actions from the beginning, you can feel that every step that Dushik took towards Heijin was courage. Many readers wonder when Dushik felt his love for Heijin and how much he loved Heijin. It was because Dushik had a trauma. I wanted to leave it up to you to decide when Dushik started to feel love for Heijin. I didn't write with any particular moment in mind. However, from the epilogue of episode one, Dushik was concerned about Heijin. And in episode four, when Heijin talked about her mother, he felt a fond sympathy towards her. And at the same time, he accepted the kiss. And in the epilogue of episode five, he felt a sense of relief and fell into a deep sleep because of Heijin's presence. It would be right to sequentially imbue and express that he was already in love at some point. Dushik's emotional lines are not directly revealed until the middle part. This is because the narrative was hidden. And the character of Dushik was unable to express his feelings honestly and outwardly. He may have felt unfriendly or omitted. For this reason, if Dushik's love for Heijin is expressed in some small way, it is uncon- unconditionally my negligence. I couldn't find a better way, and I hid it in the epilogue. End quote. What I love is we're going to do exactly what Shin Ha-Oon is inviting us to do. We're going to be interpreting what we think is going on in his head in this episode and sort of this tug of war between, you know, his heart. He's obviously drawn to her, but also his head and how he keeps sort of pulling back. Do you guys have any thoughts? My initial interpretation of this question is the fact that, you know, we talk about in the episode talks about uh, a lot how Hijin is judgy of other people. And in particular of Dusik and the way that he chooses to live his life. And, but he is also judgy of her because they both have very, they both keep people away, but they go about it in very different ways. Like he's never in one place for too long, but he's always helping people. He's going from 
from thing to thing to thing, helping like what, where he can make things easier for somebody else. He never takes anything for himself. So he he's able to never be in standing long enough to think about things or to let people in. And and that's the way that he does it. And he thinks that he thinks that's a better way because he thinks that he is adding value because he needs to add value. It's all this guilt and he has to make up for it somehow. So he thinks that that is the superior way to go about keeping people out versus he sees her being brusque and and I mean openly judgy a little bit. And so he he thinks that his method is better. And so he judges her from that perspective. And I mean, I think that his method is better, but neither are healthy. <laughs> and so I think that it's almost the intersection of them moving beyond. It's it's kind of like their little lock and key that that it is enables them to open up together. Yeah. And I don't think that they could do it on their own. It's just their own little brand of of what's the term like poking each other you know it's like they're eliciting the response that the other needs to to come out of their shell <laughs> because like for example Hygiene is she doesn't just like give in to his nice villager vibe she's like at first like annoyed by it and so she doesn't give him anything she's not like oh my god thank you so much you're the best like everybody else and he's kind of like <sighs> like he feels like he has to get that <laughs> And so in trying, I think, to get that is is where he ends up unwittingly opening up a little bit and maybe realizing that it's not so scary and that he actually kind of likes it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the way their arcs intersect and the way they change one another, I they're doing different things because what he is telling her is you don't have to live by other people's rules and expectations. I don't. Right. Mm -hmm. What he learns from her is being, as he puts it later on, honest and brave about deeply personal things, which she is able to be almost from the beginning with him, you know, with certainly sometimes with the aid of alcohol. But <laughs> but she's able to open up. Yeah. <laughs> so. So, yeah. So I think I think there's that. I think that she caught him so off guard. In the beginning, he just didn't even know what to think. He's carrying around so much guilt and so many things that he feels like he needs to atone for. And this question, you know, says that he must be aware of his own inability to open up. I, I think he is, and I think he isn't. I think there's a little bit of denial going on in there because what he is so desperate about hiding is in the past. So I feel like he does think he has good relationships with people now. And not that he needs to run, tell everybody, but. I think to a, to a large degree, they're inauthentic because he won't give of himself. So I, I don't know how aware he is of it, though. Yeah, I mean, he's wearing a mask. And, and yeah. I'll point out where I think the mask slips off and comes back on in this episode. I do think generally it's far easier to give good advice than it is to follow it yourself. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think it's very human and very realistic for him to be like, run in the rain, take risks, right? And then when it comes to emotionally going on a limb and sharing the things that he is the most ashamed of, it's hard to actually put that into practice in your own life. And I think actually, you know, if we take sort of the reader question and what Shehaun describes as every step he takes toward Haitian 
for example, grabbing her hand at the end of this episode and running out to the beach is, a, is an act of courage from him. Mm-hmm. Given his life and given what he's experienced and given sort of where he is emotionally, this is someone who, you know, not only has gone through what he's gone through, but he's essentially been alone for like over 20 years. So every every step, he takes step forwards, he takes steps back. It's like, it's a journey of that. And I think, go just picking up on what Beep said, he seems to be able to do it in the present, right? Grabbing her hand to run on the beach, being in the present when she confesses to him and giving, like, I just can't help it anymore. But it's a journey for him to be able to reckon with the past and plan for the future, if that makes sense. And I think it has everything to do with precisely his being so kind of at war with himself about the past and being able to open up about some of like the deepest traumas that have happened to him. I think that that's why we have this long and tortured journey all the way through the episode of 15. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like in those moments, it's like those little lies we tell all of our, uh, ourselves. Like it's, you know, I can be somebody else. <laughs> I I don't have to be the person who carries that. But it, it lasts like for that impulsive moment that you're running in the rain before you remember that you can't just step out of who you are and, and the things that have happened to you. They're, they're always like not that far behind. <laughs> and so like, yes, you can have those moments, but it's it's the greater journey in, in the long run that you have to surpass. Yeah. And I think it's also quite realistic. And I can think of not only in my own life, but, other, you know, other people that I know in real life that you are attracted to somebody, drawn to somebody, mm-hmm. start a relationship with somebody. And then that real journey toward intimacy and talking about the things that are hard are things that unfold over the course of a relationship. And that intimacy is something that you constantly have to work at. And, you know, I I say that as somebody who's been married for like 20 years, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so I find it very realistic that he, in a moment, grabs her hand and runs to the beach, accepts a kiss, kisses her after she's basically like, I can't keep it in anymore because he can't either. But he hasn't worked out all of the details about how is this going to work, because sometimes it's just about what you feel. Mm -hmm. I find it everywhere, and I feel like it's misattributed all over the place. But when you were talking about advice that you give but don't take, I love the quote, I sometimes give myself admirable advice, but I am incapable of taking it. (laughs) (laughs) So true. It's, It's, I mean, I speak for myself, but I say as someone who has ADHD, this one doctor who that's like his field of focus explains it as like it's knowing what to do and not being able to do it Boom. <laughs> uh, yeah so I totally get that and I also think that like there is like we it's so much easier for us to look at our uh, our friend's life and the situation that they're in and, and have very much clarity about what they should do and what would be best for them but when it's your life and you're in the thick of it, it's very hard to have that same clarity and perspective and know what to do. So I think that's Especially also when you have hard big trauma hanging over you. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. There's also a huge potential risk and downside to opening up to her. You know, like he mm-hmm. will see later, 
I'm afraid she'll be disappointed in me. You know, what, what if she had reacted the way other people, many other people he was close to in his life and blamed him? So I think that there's many, many layers to sort of this emotional reticence of Chief Hong, but it is a fascinating question that I want us to keep in the back of our minds because there's many moments during this episode in particular where I think we watch him making choices, mm-hmm. <laughs> either to pull back or seize a moment. And I personally find that push and pull between head and heart to be very realistic, particularly now that we know the character's whole journey. I mean, part of what I think, and I love this kind of moment in a slow burn where they kind of dangle. Yeah, there's feelings here, guys, but we're not going to we're not going to give you what you want <laughs> just yet. And what I think delicious is delicious breadcrumbs. Delicious. And, you know, we mentioned in our last podcast that when Heijin tried to pet, pet the hedgehog, she got pricked. And this is the episode where our two hedgehogs are going to prick each other yeah they are. you know <laughs> because yeah, there's no way around that no it's <laughs> no. so dirty minded i met it's just gonna get worse if i try and dig myself out of it but you know her hang-ups are about class and career and money and all that is tied up in her journey that we will see a snippet of about how how she has to unpack what about her self-worth is tied to that and is tied to what other people think. And he's going to pull back because of all of the things that we just talked about. And who knows what and and who pretends not to know what is like a slow-moving multi-car pileup car accident on a highway in this episode that's going to continue to the next episode because point of view, as it turns out on rewatch, now that we know that Chief Hong remembered the kiss all along, makes it really interesting as we watch how he reacts to certain things. But I think it's also an episode that is laying out two different points of view on the definition of success. We've got sort of the city elitism as voiced by Heijin. And later on, when she starts to kind of be going through her journey, her city friends will come back into the picture to kind of give voice to it. But sort of you know, if you go to a fancy university and you have the potential to earn a lot of money, why aren't you doing that? Right. That's success. Doing part time jobs and earning minimum wage is not, quote unquote, successful. And then you've got, you know, Chief Hong's definition of success, which is been learned very much the hard way. That does not always mean success. And he's living his life a very different way. So in, in many sort of conversations, both with the villagers talking about who's better a dentist or or Chief Hong, and then Chief Hong and Heijin talking to one another. This episode is like all about point of view in a lot of in a lot of really interesting ways. So, Bubs and Beat, you wake up next to a guy who on some level you like on the floor with him instead of the bed, super hungover. You have to do a walk of shame out of his house through a town to which you have just moved. And then your best friend holds up her phone and says, everybody in town thinks you slept with him. (laughs) And you can't remember what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. She basically, like, presented herself to his whole family on the way. (laughs) 
Oh my this goodness. Is not, it's not something she had time to think through, something to, I mean, oh, that poor thing. Because she knows that she's being judged. And, and as it stands right now, she doesn't even remember. It doesn't seem like anything that happened. She's pressed a little later. But I mean, right now, she's just like, wait, they're judging me for something. Wait, did I even do that? <laughs> she doesn't know. She doesn't know whether to be like actually like, you know, shy about it or not. Like, <laughs> yeah. Do you stand up and say, I didn't do that? Or do you stand up and say, I did do that? And it's none of your business. Like, he's like ambiguous shame. <laughs> yeah, you're like, you're like sitting there. Right. Uh, and you're like, oh, my God. Did I sleep with him? Um, why was I on the floor next to him? Like, what? I mean, it is. And, and just also trying to process that while also being hungover, while also having people like asking you questions right away. Like, I, I just feel so badly for her. And then when she's sitting there and it all starts coming back. <laughs> Talk to me, guys, about Heijin, the drunk pole dancer. <laughs> I love that journey for her. <laughs> oh, yes. Love it. Okay. <laughs> I, it's like you kind of see like maybe. I don't know. It's like she keeps herself so like professional and it's just kind of like a hint of her more. Her more rambunctious self that we obviously want her to feel comfortable expressing, <laughs> <laughs> not just while drinking. I mean, I loved everything about it. Um, I, I, what I think is, I mean, it's really, it was really fun. Bob's just to pick up the breadcrumbs. She has kept his birthday as her door code and is <laughs> shouting it, like looking at like the snack machine. But like what, what is so interesting, but also kind of like hurts my heart a little bit is the way their demeanors flip when they're drunk. Mm-hmm. So she is, right, she's so, like, I'm the conservative, professional, put-together woman, right? Always worried about what people think, as, particularly as we see the morning unfold. But then she's running around pole dancing, totally, but also still competitive. Like, aren't I awesome at this? Like, doing the exercise. <laughs> yes. and, and he, I mean, he takes that really, like, fun, like, selfie. He looks, he is, like, somber. It seems a little bit sad. And now I can't help but think of the scene we'll get in a few episodes where when he gets drunk, he's alone and he starts crying and he's like, don't go. Right. So it's really like, I just think it's so interesting how they seeded this earlier and the way that drinking brings out other things that are under the surface for both of them. Mm -hmm. That is a great point. Talk to me about Ganjin's Gossip Girl. XOXO, how much do I love her? <laughs> the first time I watched that scene, I was so mad at her. I was like, this bitch, like, just really, like, blowing it up for, every, for everyone. And obviously now knowing what we find out later. And I, I had forgotten that there was that one little hint scene, I think in the very first or second episode. Mm-hmm. Where she's clutching that that wand, that child's wand. So from from this perspective, I I can only see it lovingly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, you know, obviously she's Gunjan's gossip girl. But when when they actually are together, 
And she's actually like emotionally invested in Heijin. She's not going to say a word. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of, it's it's funny. It's it, it obviously is creating a big source of sort of the external pressure that's going to cause conflict. But it's also, yeah, it's a little bit sad because, you know, she's walking around by herself. And the reason why she's so worried about what everybody else is doing is because this is distraction from her own, you mm-hmm. know, her own loss. Yeah. But I so, love how everyone's in on it. I love that, like, everyone wants to know, like, it's so small town and it's all it's big town. Everybody's like that. <laughs> We're just seeing it like very up close. But yeah, we all are like that. Everybody's I mean, like that. There's no judgment. here. <laughs> that's, that is part that is human nature. That is part of living in a community. And as much as Shin Ha-un has wonderful things to say and her show is a love letter to community. She often also shows us what can be annoying about living in a community, and that is that people are up in your business, and the audience wants to know what happened just as much as Nam Suk does. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we've called on the podcast, the fourth mystery of Ganjin is we're never going to know how they ended up on that floor next to each other, oh, right? Yeah. God. Is that Does that fan fiction exist? You would know better than I would. Mm. There's, uh, I don't know if people have addressed that specifically. They've addressed well, anyone the listening who would like to address that specifically, yeah, let us yeah. know. <laughs> and, it, and it better be E-rated because, or, yeah. <laughs> Yikes. I don't waste my time. <laughs> we just determined that's not what happened. I don't <laughs> It's an alternative universe beep. It's fine. Oh, my mistake. Canon uh, divergent. Vampires, yeah. coffee shops. I got you. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what? But I mean, even the grannies are in on it. The grannies oh, are in on group chats. <laughs> Again, it's accurate. The biggest gossip in our family is my grandmother. You know, <laughs> it's like, I'm like, oh, my mom was like, oh, what happened with them? What did your neighbor say? Well, I'm like, whoa, grandma, you know more than I do. And you don't even live here. Well, because they didn't used to have anything to do. Yeah. But my yeah. grandmother's hip. She's on Twitter. <laughs> oh, no. <Aww>. Literally one <laughs> day I was like, I logged on and it was like, blah, 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 blah is following you. And I was like, that's grandma. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, but she, she had a login to it. So it's fine. Okay, probably. Who knows? You don't know that there's not a family group chat about your Twitter. (laughs) That's true. That's my nightmare. (laughs) All right. So I love how also (laughs) just adding to the comedy, how Mi Song's diarrhea is a constant (laughs) driver of plot. (laughs) Of the secondary romantic couple. Also, our first romantic couple, because imagine mm. having this morning, not knowing what the hell happened last night, having to walk through the village alone, everyone's gossiping about you, and then the guy who you don't know whether you slept with shouts at the top of his lungs, hey, Miss Dentist, you didn't do the dishes. <laughs> ah, like- Oh, my God. I mean, that's where you strangle somebody, right? I think that that's admissible in court. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, but part of this also, what this episode plays with is point of view, because she knows everybody's gossiping about them, but he he doesn't. (laughs) So, right? Like, it's also just, like, 
honestly, the villagers are so hilarious. Namsuk is like the comedic MVP. She goes, you look so tired. How wonderful. <laughs> like, congratulations. Congratulations on the sex, Jifong. <laughs> it really did feel genuine. <laughs> like totally. a genuine mix. Yeah. I mean, the guy's 35 and they've never seen him date anybody, right? Like, they're so yeah. excited. Well, the, the husband of the pregnant lady, I can't remember her own name, when they're very blatantly spying at them eating breakfast and you know everyone's like you know did they bull and he's like okay they're uh, they're adults they probably did and it's like it's like in the back of it's like yeah they're adults they probably did although we know that that's not what happened <laughs> yeah but he also is he's also looking through the window and he's like it's so pretty <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean it is he's not wrong yeah, when, you know, when Haitians, like, everyone's probably saying how good we look together. I'm like, yes, at home on my couch and also the people in the village. Yeah. Oh. All right. So I think it's really important to set up. Oof, this is a very interesting conversation. And we're going to follow it all the way through from sitting down to breakfast all the way through their conversation afterwards. I think. I think point of view is really important here. So, Haitian, we know we now know that she is a woman who has already gone through many experiences of like people talking behind her back and being looked down on. She is new to town. She doesn't know these people. She's embarrassed by their gossip. She's, you know, self-conscious. She's, I think we've already kind of talked about the last couple episodes. She's definitely more of an introvert than Chief Hong. She herself doesn't remember what happened. So you've got like a lot of nervousness, right? And so her her not knowing what happened last night, her paramount concern is shutting this down because it's really uncomfortable to be the center of attention this way. And I totally feel for her, right? Like it, mm -hmm. you're walking through a town and everybody is taking pictures of you and talking about it. You've only known these people for like a month and you yourself can't even remember what happened. Right. And particularly, I don't know, like as a woman, you're like, oh, my God, mm -hmm. like, did I sleep with them? like what happened? Right. So that's also the only person she would talk to about it is involved in this. <sighs> right. Yes. Is like right up there in it. <laughs> yes. She's either that or on the toilet. So there's really just no room there. Yeah. I mean, why not both? <laughs> <laughs> True. True. Yeah. She, she's definitely on the group chat sitting on the toilet for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, as as women, I think we can all relate to the judginess of it. Like, we never want to be judged in small town America. It would be very uncomfortable yeah. to be witnessed on potentially a walk of shame. I mean, the walk of shame is not generally something that I think most of us would celebrate everyone in our community talking oh, no. about so and again particularly as women i think we pro i think it is fair to say no matter what culture you come from right women kind of bear the brunt more about whether or not you slept with someone and people judging you for it than men do right absolutely so, totally yeah. and this also is not only community-based it sounds like this is something she's not comfortable with mm -hmm. based on you know her her conversations with me or whatever you know her being so held back or whatever like it's not even something she would necessarily do. And now she's stuck in a position where she don't even know. Well, she doesn't even want people to think she has a boyfriend, really. <laughs> right. 
Well, true. Yeah. Me son says even kissing somebody is out of character for you taking that initiative. So, you know, walking home in the morning hung over and maybe having had a one night stand with a guy is not something he mm-hmm. normally does. Right. So she's sitting down with all of that going on in her head. Now let's talk about Chief Hawk. He woke up, his head hurt, but he's kind of, you know, this this girl who fascinates him, right? Mm-hmm. Kissed kissed him last night. He it's woke, a good day. It's a it's a good morning. And he knows what happened. <laughs> his head may hurt, but he remembers it. He remembers how they ran around town and she was acting the way she never has acted before, right? He closed his eyes and he kissed her back. He woke up in the middle of the night and for the first time probably in his entire life, he saw somebody next to him. He was able to exhale, smile, and go back to sleep. He's shuffling around his house. He finds her umbrella. He's kind of fondly like, oh, I guess she was in a rush, right? He starts cooking and he offers to her, have you eaten yet? So his intent was to invite her to come eat at his house. And the girl that kissed him last night asks him to breakfast in front of everyone. What do you think he's feeling? We're going to get married. (laughs) I mean, at some level, you're not expecting what she then says. So did anything happen yesterday? (laughs) Did you guys watch his face? <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but then what's interesting, what's really interesting is what happens next. He remembers they kissed. She doesn't. He decides to pretend that it didn't happen. Why do you think he does that? I mean, I think that. It's, it's like the disappointment that like, I mean, I think a few things can run through your head. You're like, were they too drunk? (laughs) Is she pretending that she doesn't remember? This thing that maybe was like a fun thought for me now is like something different. And so I think it's, it's between like his pride or giving her an out or just pushing it all away altogether by just pretending it doesn't happen. I think it is. I can see how it was a logical decision for him. Yeah, it is. It is. He's got a decision right there, right? It's it's like the decision tree is either I say, yes, we kissed. Now we got to deal with it. Or, wow, I, I have an opportunity to not deal with it. And I can just continue as we are, right? Kind of orbiting her, but not have to deal with it. And I think it's not surprising, given now everything that we know about him and given the way that Shin Ha-un talks about his journey, that he took the opportunity to step back. I think a lot of his response actually had to do with fear because he gave himself the opportunity, especially when he sunk into that kiss, man. He didn't just let her kiss him. He gave him, he made a choice, just like you said, Cece. He makes choices and he chose to do that. And so he, in, in his own way, opened up and now he feels rejected. So yes. does she mm. remember? He doesn't know. Did she not like it? He doesn't know. You know, so he has no idea where she stands. And that place of like, of indecision and discomfort is not one that he's going to sit in. 
Yeah. It's kind of like the universe saying like, oh, you thought you could have things? Yeah. Ha ha ha. JKY. <laughs> you don't deserve that because that's what he feels and it's reinforcing uh, that feeling. Right. So maybe she's just rejecting him too. And, and, you know, I love the way you, I love the way you put that, that he sank into that kiss. I love that. But he also, he also did that when his inhibitions were down, right? Mm-hmm. He was drinking too. And so what felt natural in the moment, it is now the morning after. The cold light of day, <laughs> hungover, she doesn't remember. And it's harder to take that risk and have to be the initiator than to receive that attention and give into it, you know? And it's, it really is kind of, oh, I feel so much for both of them now that we, you know, it, I feel like we just know these characters so well. And it's like, God, would you guys just get through this? You're going to be like one of the most amazing TV couples ever in supporting one another. But right now it's like so painful. And also like he reaches over to clean her mouth and she freaks out. And and she's basically then is like, the only reason why I'm at breakfast with you oh. was to convince everyone that there's nothing going on between us. Yeah. And, and you know what? It's like you you totally understand it from her perspective, but it crushes you from his perspective. It's just like such a terrible collision course. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> of what they're trying, they're each trying to do. And her reaction has nothing to do with how she feels or doesn't feel about him. It, it all has to do with preserving who she is trying to be, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and she also, I listen, everything that we know about Heijin, even in the conversation that's going to happen in about 15 minutes, is that when she, she puts herself out there emotionally. So if she knew that they had kissed, I don't think she'd be handling it this way. You know, so it's just kind of this kind of like, like tragic is a strong word, but it you know it's this car wreck of what one person knows and what uh, what another person doesn't, right? And 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 how that is feeding into everybody's sort of already predetermined insecurities or life experience. And it's not like Chief Hong has a lot of experience opening up to people, right? The the writer of the show describes every step he takes towards her as taking courage because of everything he's been through. And so he did that last night and now she doesn't remember. So it's just, and she's basically like, he thought, oh, the girl that kissed me invited me to breakfast. And it turns out it was just to convince everybody in town that we're not together. Oof. Ouch. And he doesn't actually know if she knows or not. That is that to me would be the hardest part if I were him. Yeah, because it's like, are, wait, are we are we agreeing to pretend that this didn't happen? Or <laughs> yeah, and they later three different things. Yeah, and later on, he's when he realizes because of the way she's acting that she does remember. I think he probably misinterprets it as to her being like embarrassed because of the differences between them. Whereas really, she's mm. re- reeling from. I do remember and this guy's pretending that it didn't happen, right? So it's just, honestly, it's like, it's like a multi-car pileup. <laughs> Things keep happening and cars keep crashing because, because of the very cleverly orchestrated order of who knows what and when. This scene that 
even the first time around, absolutely crushes me is when they go up to the register to pay. If you just concentrate on Kim Sun Ho's face, where he's like, oh, it's my lucky day, you know, and like he's going to go pay for her. And she says, I don't let just any guy pay for my meal. And he thinks that she's going to pay for him. And then she pointedly asks to split the check. Mm -hmm. He looks like dazed and crushed. That is a moment where the mask slips off. And he is disappointed. Like it hurts. Can you imagine that this girl kissed him last night? And then the next morning, I don't let any guy pay for my meal. Yeah, and that just any guy on even another level because that could just be a friend thing. Yeah, and she's still just like rejecting him so hard, and you know, and he kind of thought like, oh, well, you got it, no big deal, I'll get it next time, like that idea. And then she's like, no, I'm not paying for you either. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I. Personally, I like going halfsies because I feel like really uncomfortable if it's like, especially if you're going to go on several dates and it's just like, it makes me uncomfortable to have somebody pay for me over and over again. But in this case, I, I think it is different. But he's, at, but he's basically getting ahead of himself and he's like, okay, this will then thank you. And she, when she pointedly is like, no, we're splitting the bill. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a rejection of connection of any kind, right? It would be the saying, right? Like imagine saying that to a friend. <laughs> you know, like I mean it, it 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 and then what's really interesting is the mask goes back up. They walk outside and he is cheerful and is like okay, well let's go get coffee. So the but the thing is we'll know from future episodes he absolutely remembers that moment and what she said about not letting any guy pay for my meal because when director G comes into she comes into the restaurant and they're all there she's like oh director G like take take me out to to a meal sometime and he's going to be like i thought you didn't let just any guy pay for your meal right so like <laughs> he, it, that this moment sticks with him but the mask is back up and he's like let's go get coffee which i think is really interesting because it's like he wants to keep it going yeah he wants to be near her. He likes that feeling. I think there's another layer to this, if I may. And yeah, even go if I'm it. going too far with it, I don't care. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing the difference between them and how many times she said this and, and such, you know, that he doesn't have a lot of money and this and that. And he knows that she's so money oriented. I think he was actually kind of excited when he thought she was going to pay for him. Because in a in a way... That is one of her love languages for her to let go of some of her money to give somebody something that is like the same way he would make them something. Mm. So when he kind of potentially thought he was getting that gesture and then for it to be immediately struck down. That's, yeah. just, that's what Beep is thinking over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think it that way, but yeah, but I do like how he brings it up later with the other guy. Because it's such a jealousy thing to do to suddenly get like very, very pedantic about like what was said before. <laughs> Absolutely. But that, what, I, what I think is so interesting is all of the layers because you have to watch his face to understand that this, what maybe seems insignificant to Heijin moment like crushed him, <laughs> right? And then you have to mm-hmm. remember it a few episodes from now when it comes up when he's jealous, 
right? And so it's all so subtle, but you're right. It is completely realistic, right? When you like someone, whether you realize it or not, you're going to file all of these details away the same way she files away whether or not he wants to order snow crab at a restaurant, right? Like all of these things get filed away. It's an in-depth scrapbook that leaves nothing behind. (laughs) (laughs) In your mind. I mean, and we also know like this, this kiss had, is like torturing him the next episode, right? He's going to like read a poem called First Kiss and sit there and be like, ah, right? It's really interesting to watch the choices he makes, the way he's reacting to things when she's not looking versus when she is leading up to her very bold, brave question. Do you like me? Talk to me about what happens next. It's kind of brutal <laughs> because the way she she is contextualizing it, it's basically, it feels like she would be making fun of him. Like, I feel like what he hears in connection with that is, oh my God, do you like me? Because I do not like you. Well, especially coming off of the heels of, like, if you think about it from both the perspectives, she's like, why is this guy asking me to coffee? Why does this guy rescue my shoe? Why is he always around? Like, do you like me? And he's like, she asks him this question coming right off of her refusing to even let them pay for one another's meals, right? So, like, what are the chances he's going to be like, yes, even if he did realize it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's not exactly setting you up to feel like you should go out on a limb. On the other hand, she is going out on a limb to ask because then for him to say, he doesn't just say no. He says, don't be absurd. (laughs) Ouch. That is an ouch. I feel like they're slinging burns without like necessarily meaning to or they're just coming from a different place because they're not having the same conversation. (laughs) They're not. And it's like a trade wreck of of hurt feelings, right? Why do you think she asks? Because it's a big question to ask. Like, I feel like that's a hard question for most people to ask. I mean, if you come off of their breakfast, it's like he reached out to touch your mouth. He is talking about splitting the bill. Everybody's talking about them being together. This guy has been, if you think about even from episode one, all of the things that he's done for her. I mean, she's not wrong. All of the things that she points to are what we as an audience have been keeping track of as evidence that he likes her. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I like I don't know. And she is somebody, as she says later on, who doesn't like things to be in limbo. Right. Mm-hmm. She's going to say that in episode 14. I, I don't like somebody who likes the status quo where things are vague or gray. Her, she wants to know. And so she's going to address it head on the same way that as soon as she figures out I like him, I'm going to go drive four hours straight and go say it to his face <laughs> right away. <laughs> you know, Aww. but I mean, when he says, don't be absurd. I mean, I think we can, from his point of view, understand why he reacts that way. Anybody want to unpack that? Well, yeah, because he she's just been, like, throwing dirt at him all day, basically. <laughs> and I think it's, like, I can kind of see why. I mean, obviously, he has, he has feels. But from her perspective, like, he's not acting like we need to make sure the town doesn't think something's going on. Mm-hmm. It seems like he's reveling in it. And maybe on some level he is, but he also, like, A, he knew what happened. B, 
be, he thought they were getting closer in a in a way that he maybe hasn't felt in a very long time. It and so all these new things that felt exciting, and maybe like a fresh splash of water for the first time in a long time, she's she's like ruining it. Yeah. And I also think he's it, I think he's more impervious to this kind of gossip than she is because number one, he's from there and he's yeah. known these people his whole life. So he can push back on them being annoying and gossiping in a way that if you're a newcomer, you you're not on that level able to do and you're able to do. He also has had them. He knows that they gossip about his missing five years. He's got way bigger things that people mm-hmm. are gossiping about. That That's this true. Seems, that this seems quite minor in comparison. It's just not going to like people are wondering where the hell he was for five years. And it's like his deepest, darkest secrets of his life compared to people wondering what he did last night with this woman. It, it It's apples and oranges, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Also, I don't get the impression that this is a new group chat. So it's really interesting that he's not on it. <laughs> yeah he just is not he's just like what what are you guys doing stop taking pictures of us like he's just not going to partake in that right well he's uh, he's awesome chief hong when are they not taking pictures of him like i yeah. take pictures of him yeah same but you know what i think is fascinating about the way that this unfolds is when each of them feels disappointed maybe on his point, on his part, embarrassed mm-hmm. on her part, they revert to the thing that they're going to have to struggle with. He closes himself off. The wall goes back up and he is not going to talk about his feelings, even if on some level he does like her. She immediately reverts to class and she says, we're not a good match. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about Haitian lashing out at him in that way given everything we now know about her okay can i take the no you didn't girl side for a minute (laughs) 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 she he literally just told her that he does not like her like why is she continuing on this path because she's (laughs) embarrassed i know but it's this kind of it's (laughs) It's, it's kind of hard to have to listen to it when she was like, do you like me? And he's like, no. And now you're still going to stand here and tell me how much I suck and why? Like, no, thank you. Yeah, I know because she's basically like, well, good, because it wouldn't work anyway. That's a, yeah. that's, a that's a reflex to being embarrassed. It's like, yeah, you're right. It is. It is absurd. <laughs> yeah. What me on is going to trigger in her remembering and what still makes her so upset that at age 34, she still will walk out of a room and go into a bathroom alone and upset about it is when her boyfriend put her down for class, for lack of money, for the way she dressed. And it was humiliating. And I think it's really interesting that her reflex when she is embarrassed because she has gone out on a limb to be like, do you like me? And he hasn't just said no. We're just good friends. Don't be silly. He said, it's that's absurd that her reflex is to assert her career, her money, that they are in different classes, especially given that that are those are all of the same things that people used to make her feel terrible about in college. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, and there's no one, in many, many cases, there's no one more judgmental than someone who's come out of the situation that you're still in. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like she uses those things as, you know, some of us eat yummy things when we're stressed out. She surrounds herself in designer shoes as like, okay, having a tough time with the career, but we're going to get something pretty to remind ourselves who we are now. <laughs> And that yep. we're going to continue to be that person. Okay. So it is something that she clings to as a sign of, as like a a support line, <laughs> which is funny, you know, she does draw strength from that. And I don't think, I don't know that that's wrong or, or whatever, but it is, she's using it here again as a support line. As armor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The same way yeah, that she. Reflector. Yeah. The same way she put those high heel shoes on in college, no matter how much they hurt her feet. Here she's going to reassert, okay, well, I'm better than you anyway. So it wouldn't have worked out. Now, there's a lot of layers to unpack because she does say one thing that I actually think does make sense, that people need to have important values in common in order to have a relationship. And what we now know is that the two of them actually have all of the important things in common. Like they both worked their butts off in college, whether it was getting scholarships and getting top grades or whether it was working, you know, all kinds of jobs and basically living off sausages in her backpack, right? Mm -hmm. They both like are in different ways, help people. Mm -hmm. And they've always been that way. When people need help, they're not the kind of people that just like walk by and are like, that's somebody else's problem. And all of the other things that are different between them, she's eventually going to go on a journey where she's like, well, to hell with all that other stuff because all that other stuff doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. It's also really interesting to think about what is going through Chief Hong's head now that we know not only did he go to a prestigious university, but he used to work in the investment world and have all the money in the world. Mm Mm-hmm. Probably substantially more than her. For sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, what? There's that newspaper article. It was what? Like, fund of the year, right? Like, so so he is sitting there absorbing what she's saying, knowing that he could have all that and chooses not to because he went off a cliff chasing all that. Mm -hmm. But then... And this is kind of painful. (laughs) All right. So put away all of, if we put all of that to the side, the thing that she's saying on the most basic level is you're not good enough for me, right? When it comes to what actually matters, whether he's a good man worthy of her, that is actually going to be his deepest concern long term and what he's going to say to Director Xi. I just don't think I'm worthy of her. So it's sort of asking this whole, like, who's better than who? And and his Chief Hong is the hero and he's the pride of Ganjin. And this whole thread that runs through this whole episode and the hint that they give at the end about his nightmare, which is basically repeatedly in his nightmares asking this question, do you think you deserve to be happy? Like, do you think that you're worthy of this? His internal answer has nothing to do with money, but it has to do with, the acts that he has, what he did or didn't do, 
and who got hurt because of it, that he thinks he isn't worthy of her. Mm -hmm. And on that level, it's really, uh, it hurts my heart to watch this conversation because even though she is talking about things that ultimately don't matter, this question of whether he thinks he's good enough for her is something that we're going to end up grappling with for the rest of the show. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I kind of felt like he, you know, money and love are kind of different forms of power. If you think about it through love, you have the capacity to hurt somebody greatly because of the way that our world works. Money wields a lot of power and has a huge effect over people's lives. And he was, you know, at his job, he was in a position where he was very close to money. And he saw the power that it held by how it kind of just ruined lives. And he he was there. He was a part of that, whether it was his fault or not. And it's almost like with love, he kind of feels that same like hum of power and it scares him. He doesn't want to be in that place again where he's able to cause the same kind of damage <laughs> that he was before. So that's kind of like another, I think, angle to the way that he has fear and guilt mm-hmm. and shies away from things that can repeat the pattern that he's already lived through. Yeah. To quote another show that we have talked about before on a podcast, it's the losing that haunts us. Mm. Right. It's that risk. And he steps back repeatedly from it, mm-hmm. repeatedly from love. Then he basically is like, I like, I pity you. You're so calculating. And he walks away pissed. <laughs> Meanwhile, everyone in the village, the chat room has gotten together in person. And they're having this, they're having this same <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah. They're having this same conversation. They're talking about who's worthy of the other and who's better than who. And what I think is so fascinating is that the city, and that's Heijin representing that point of view in in this episode, but later on when he goes to the golf club, it'll be her friends from college. They view who has the most money and who has the more prestigious job as being who, as, as being sort of the definition or the barometers of who is better. The village views who's better by who can do what. And Chief Hong can do everything. And all Hei Jin can do is fix teeth. (laughs) I like how it actually comes up, though, like, if she can do that, or if he can do that, too. (laughs) Wait, can you also do that? Hold on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're basically, you know, if you look at it from Hei Jin's perspective, it's like, dude, all he has is part-time jobs. He earns minimum wage. I'm an educated dentist with a professional degree. I'm better. Everyone in town is like, he can do everything. He's brilliant. He aced every exam. He won a math award. Every girl's had a crush on him. She'd be lucky to have him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everyone's like, yeah, he's basically every every girl in Ganjun. It was like, yeah, he was our first love. You know, like even in front of their husbands. (laughs) Like, (laughs) so, and I love it because sweet Oyun is like, you know what? Like, maybe they're both great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that moment because, you know, I think we all know those people in our lives who, you know, when you come across them, they stand out. Like, I think of my grandmother who is like, she was she was raised in Podoc, Kansas and married a Mexican and then spent the rest of her life, life in Mexico. She's like, she sees the best in everybody. 
And so she would totally be, oh, you being like, but maybe they're both great. <laughs> I have to say that there is, I, this is so realistic. I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations where somebody started dating somebody and people are like, is he good enough? Especially among like girlfriends, this guy good enough for her? And like what, it's very interesting what people focus on, right? That tells you a lot about them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is a community that that does not trade in the investment world, right? They trade in the services that they all provide for one another. And so by that barometer, Chief Hong is like, he's literally the best. He can do anything, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about, I want to talk specifically about this Seoul National University reveal. And not only for what it for what it does to the audience, but also how it changes Haitian's point of view. And I kind of want to unpack like the the elitism of it, right? Because I think it's I think it's interesting how intrigued Haitian is by the fact that he's that he went to the most prestigious university in the country. Like obviously the first thing is it upends everything that she thinks about him. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any thoughts about this just to kick off? It's like one of those things that like I think we all do. We take these little shortcuts to understand people and make assumptions, which I mean, it's never right. But I can understand her being like, wait. <laughs> but again, it's like whether or not that was true, there's still so much more to him. Regardless of whether he went to Seoul National University. Yeah, I, you know, I... I saw the reason why I was asking this is because I saw a comment, you know, there's there's still people that are still like discovering hometown cha-cha-cha, obviously, for the first time. Right. And so whatever like the algorithm does that like they're like, Cece, you're obviously obsessed with hometown cha-cha-cha. So so please enjoy what everybody on Twitter has to say about it. However, the algorithm works. There was something that came across my timeline where somebody was being critical and they were saying, like, isn't it a shame that the show felt like they had to establish that he went to this prestigious university to, mm. I guess, in their words, cut against the fact that he, you know, works with his hands and earns minimum wage and isn't, you know, doesn't have a high powered job. And so and I can understand that reaction to it. However, as we talked about in the first podcast, what Shin Ha-un is doing is she has modeled him after a specific historical figure, Henry David Thoreau, who went to Harvard and purposefully rejected what society expects. And I think that is what the, the key is here. Chief Hong can do all of these things that Haitian and the city expects and defines as success. And what he as a character and Henry David Thoreau were challenging is saying, I don't think that's success. And therefore, I reject it. And I'm going to live by my own rules. And unless he's capable of living by society's rules and doing all of the things that there's that he's supposed to do and have this high power job and work in investment banking city or millions, you know, of one a year, like then there's not the same power to that message of rejecting sort of what society expects. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think seeing it from a different perspective, it could be less about her opening up to the idea of like, oh, maybe he's more than I thought he was. I also can't kind of see the other side of like, oh, maybe I'm losing my edge over saying how much better I am. 
Yeah. Because you know what she did? She judged him by how he dresses and his job and what he does, just like her boyfriend did to her in college. And that is why she walks out of the end of the day from work. And Misan is like, are you still feeling like, oh, what are you so kind of like sad that you were like or embarrassed how wrong you were to talk about social positions when you find out that he went to the most prestigious university? And I don't think it's just that because when she actually sits down with him to a meal, the first thing that comes out of her mouth is to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I don't think it's just about being factually wrong. I think it's because she turned around and did to him what her boyfriend did to her. You know, she looked down on him. Oh, 100%. The person who spoke that criticism, I think that it's fair criticism because there is a story out there where somebody does not have any kind of status like that and can it can still prove that they're worthy of love and esteem, respect and everything, that they're still smart, whether or not they went to a fancy college, you know? So I think that that is a worthy story to tell. But in this case, I agree with the the way that the story is setting it up that he's proven that he could have had all of that. Like there's he he already started the process of having that life. So there's no question about like, well, I could have done that. You know, it's like, no, he did. He did. And it's it's through living that life that he found something else (laughs) and, and shows something else. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's that he attained that definition of success and yet left soul feeling like an utter failure and even questioning whether to continue living mm-hmm. because there's other things that matter more. This is- uh, let's let's put a pin in this discussion because when we get to the scene where he does the math, I do <laughs> I do think there is something to Not only partners having shared values, but intellectually stimulating one another and challenging one another that she ultimately delights in because he's brilliant, right? And that's Mm -hmm. like fascinating and appealing to her because she's smart and she's somebody who, you know, is not just like driven. I mean, she's, you know, a dentist is a profession where you have to be very smart and study hard and be like intellectually curious, right? Also, the only boyfriend they actually showed her having was 100% not that. (laughs) He was not intellectual at all. He was just rich. And just materialistic, right? Misan is often, even though she has to kind of work again, is very good at giving advice and needs to learn how to figure out how to follow it in her own life. (laughs) In her journey (laughs) with her future boyfriend. What she says is, Love shouldn't be about weighing things. It's about what's in your heart. And that's that piece of advice is something that Heijin is ultimately absolutely going to follow. She's literally going to run to him and say, I don't care about all the other stuff. This to hell with it. This is mm-hmm. how I feel. And her, you know, her friend also points out to her, look, your approach of trying to screen men based on these preconceived notions of what will make you compatible hasn't worked out so well, has it? (laughs) Which is like brutal coming from your friend, right? And obviously hits home because she just like says nothing and walks out of there. 
So one of the things that this episode establishes, both overtly in the conversations as among the townspeople, as Mison then explains to Heijin, is that there are three mysteries of Ganjin. And Shin Ha-un is laying them out explicitly. And the first is, why did Ha-jung and Young-guk get divorced? We'll get to that. This episode kind of explores that. We'll get to the second one in, in a second. What I love that the way the scene ends is that Mi-son is like, when Heijin walks away, she's like, don't you want to know the third secret? And the third secret is who won the lottery. And that's Mi-son's future husband. <laughs> <laughs> So it's it's like kind of clever. <laughs> I play with that. All right. So the number two mystery of Ganjin is the biggest mystery of the entire structure of hometown Cha. And that is what Chief Hong was doing with those five years. Bubs, talk to us about some of the things that we learn about Chief Hong and like his childhood from this kind of clever Misa narrating it and these flashbacks. Well, yeah. I mean, he he very much embodies how we see him today in terms of like being this sparkly, um, effervescent, amazing person in town. As a child, that's who he was too, right? Like he was he was super, super smart. He always had the top grade. <laughs> he always worked really hard. He did freaking engineering. Engineering's like I went to an engineering school. I did not do engineering because it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> So, I mean, he's amazing. That's what we know about him now. Yeah, but that they get into, and it's so, I mean, I want to, like, think about the fact Chief Hong is this, you know, every episode, there's a new tagline for him. The pride of Ganjin. They put up banners. He gets awards. He's the hero of Ganjin. Last episode, right? Brave Citizenship Award twice. (laughs) Nobody in the village knows what the hell happened to him and what he was doing for five years. That's insane, right? Like Mm -hmm. the, the level of walls up that these people that he has been around since he was a kid, right? There's that adorable flashback with the grandmothers with very different hairstyles and darker hair, right? (laughs) Remembering when he was a little kid and none of them know. And there's there was a level of comedy to all of this, right? That I think is so meta because the thing is, you have all of the people in the village gossiping about it, but it basically just reflects all of the wild speculation on social media as to like <laughs> what the hell this story was, like what happened to him, right? And the theories, the theories in that the villagers are talking about is like maybe he was a spy, maybe he worked for an intelligence agency, he like was raising lions in Africa. He swam the Pacific. He climbed Mount Everest, right? There's these hilarious, like, almost out of crash landing on you, right? Where Chief Hong That's is, what I was thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And well, there's I got this, major cloy feels from that. Yeah. And there's this comedy to it, right? So, like, if Chief Hong always is, like, flipping his hair back, even if he's, like, in the forest with the, like, you know, like fake foliage she's still gonna flip it back (laughs) i loved that so much (laughs) i loved it so much wait what what do you guys think well what did you think when you're like imagining all this were your guys' thoughts like as crazy or did you have like specific oh my god the like twitter (laughs) speculation particularly when they covered 
when you couldn't see the face of the man in the photograph in the book and all you saw was a woman holding a baby. Oh. I mean, the fan speculation was that he had lost a wife and a child. That's why you hear later on a child wailing in the dream that there had been some kind of accident that he caused some sort of like as an engineer, some sort of disaster where people died, right? Like the speculation, mm. right? There was a whole theory about which, which in part was correct that like he was involved in some sort of car accident. And that's why we would never, for so many episodes, we never saw him in a car. So there's all kinds of speculation, which is hilarious because it's like this meta point that this is what people do. We're curious and we want to know things. And just like the villagers gossiping around like a table, that's what the audience is doing at home. And in episode, what is it, like 13? Chief Hong is going to be like, dude, all of that is ridiculous. <laughs> what, do you mean? what do you mean I'm a spy? Right? Like the answer, the answer is actually much more straightforward and mundane and all the more tragic for it. Right? Like, and Two of the things that they say on rewatch are really kind of punching the guts because it's the hardware store owner. He was like, did he kill someone or maybe he was in a mental asylum? And it's kind of played for laughs, right, as as outlandish things. But at the end of the day, he does feel like he's responsible for an attempted suicide and a death. And he did have a quite acute, you know, emotional breakdown where he was suicidal. And so it's really fascinating to rewatch it and also think about how this conversation is going to be revisited. They're going to be assembled almost in the same place once they know pieces of what happened when he gets punched in the face. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like what matters is that this, like, they miss him. And is he going to be okay? Mm -hmm. One of those things that sometimes you learn in life is that you're always going to be the harshest one on yourself <laughs> than other people. So, so, like, the village kind of taking this, obviously, they're surprised when they find out what actually happened. But, like you said, they accept him. Because yeah. they know him because he's more than one thing. He's a lot of things like everybody. No, it, it's not black and white. People are complicated. Things happen. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that I think I expected, at least from the conventions of, let's say, American TV, mm -hmm. I, I expected that there would have need to have been some reckoning with the people in the town where he has some conversations and like explains it. And what I think is really interesting and far more powerful is it doesn't, they're sitting here speculating about what happened. They're going to find out in, in, in the most dramatic way possible, right? He's going to get punched in the face and called mm -hmm. a coward in front of all of them. At the end of the day, they just, he's still a part of their community and everybody just moves on together. And they're celebrating joyfully that he's happy and that he's okay and that he's getting married. And he doesn't need to explain all of this stuff that they're wildly speculating. You know, like maybe there was some conversations that happened off screen, right? That like, mm -hmm. you know, we can headcanon that happened. But, but ultimately, all of this stuff that they're wildly speculating about, at the end of the day doesn't matter because they care about him and he's part of their community. 
Exactly. Well, and he's been back and he's been active. I mean, they know who he is, so it doesn't matter what he's done. And also to make clear, even though it's a very murky situation, he didn't actually do anything. Yeah. 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 I mean, that that is what is so mundanely tragic about it, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a series of choices. And then the choices having, you know, on a much larger sense, right? We're watching kind of an interpersonal train wreck uh, with very small stakes right here about the morning after from a drunken kiss and all of the things that are pile up, right? But he made a series of choices of giving, letting the guy invest in the fund or not answering the card calls or not following up and things like that. And then other people made other choices and he gets blamed for them. Yeah. And words hurt. Right. This is like casual gossip. There are other conversations that happen later in the show where the words make like lasting damage. Mm -hmm. Well, I think like I really do feel as guilt because as somebody who is a horrible procrastinator, a lot of the times when I'm not dealing with something is because I'm I'm trying to fix it in another way so that I can then face it. So when, when the guy's calling him, you know, to ask about the stocks and everything. I get him not answering because I feel like that is what I would have done. I'd be like, I will call him when I can figure out some way to deliver better news or that once I've figured out what we're going to do, that that's when I'm going to take the call with or something I could do about it. Um, and so I could totally see myself being in that position. And like, how do you not feel immense guilt? Yeah. When I, the way that you went about it was so clearly the wrong way. <laughs> Well, right. And it's it is sadly, I mean, not not his fault, but no, what I was and and when to be quite frank, when I was watching the later episodes of the show, there was a suicide in my community and everybody left behind asks themselves those very questions. What what could I have done? Could I have called them more? Could I what I what this, that, that. And you second guess all of those things. Right. That is so human in dealing your with your grief now layer on top of that the fact that his young's widow is says to somebody who just almost took his own life it should have been you who died or the man's wife the the security guard's wife is like you're disgusting right and that family's whole narrative to avoid blaming the person who's unconscious is mm-hmm. that it must be this hung do sheik's fault it's his mm-hmm. fault that, that's why my father would have taken all these risks, because it's this guy's fault. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, it's like all of the guilt that people normally would take on to themselves onto themselves. But then on top of that, people speaking out of grief and explicitly out loud blaming him. Mm-hmm. All right. Beep. That brings us to the grandmothers in a field of flowers. Mm-hmm. Listen, you know how I feel about Camry. I'm like, ride or die. I love that she... I'm sure she has some sort of interest in this. But also not. I mean, she seems to be the most level-headed person about it. I love when she threatens the uh, shop owner that she's going to staple his mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) So that she no longer has to hear what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's just not concerned as far as those five years because she's more thankful okay but we have him now like he's here Mm -hmm. we get to see him he's part of my life he does things for me i do things for him like i you know she's not saying it outright but like she loves this guy 
Yeah. As as her son, as her grandson, we see all that stuff later, but she's just, she's more worried about the man he is than what may have happened before he came back. Yeah. And I think that there's, there's a lot, it's a very quick conversation at the beginning before we get into sort of the photography of it all, (laughs) which is quite (laughs) emotional on rewatch. But so the grandmothers are also like, okay, so what's the deal, Gamry? Because he kept in touch with you more than anybody else. Actually, we now know he was so busy and so entangled in this investment banking world, he had almost forgotten her. So she actually wasn't in touch with him, right? But but, but when she says, why does it matter? He is here with us now. It's sort of this really interesting grappling with how much the past should impact the present because Misona is also going to tell that to Heijin, like, why don't you stop worrying about what happened and focus on the present? And that's something that Heijin is going to tell Chief Hong to do in life at the very end of the story. Like, stop worrying. And, and Gary will too. Like, stop worrying about the past, focus on what you have now, and just let yourself be happy. So I think that's like a really interesting kind of like, Everyone assumes that Gamri was more in touch, but we now know that she actually wasn't until the like life-defining moment when she was. It's also really sort of, uh, it's a beautiful scene of these like field of yellow flowers and, you know, very romanticist with a big R. They're out in nature. The women are comparing themselves to, to flowers. They're talking about when in life do you stop to appreciate the flowers, that they are flowers toward you know, towards the end of blooming, right? Like comparing (laughs) their lives. Now that we know why he's taking these photographs, how does that make you guys feel? Ugh. Pass. (laughs) (laughs) My heart. No, I'm not going to let you chief hong this beep. (laughs) (laughs) It hurts my heart and you know it. He's just like, he really spends so much time thinking about everybody else and what they need that he has it on such a micro level that he's taking pictures and he's not getting paid i know that's not normally something to think about but in his case like that's a huge deal he's taking some of his free time and just doing this for them that's his love language this is what it he is. did yeah it's what he did for Haitian in the last episode too he worked on his day off acts of service that's my favorite one, that and gifts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> Words were like my the lowest one of my totem pole. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we're going to think about this in sort of the lovely circle, right? Mm-hmm. The woman who stayed in touch with him, who reached out to him and is the reason why he is, in her words, here with them now, is cataloging what remains of her life because he remembers that she liked the photographs at a wedding and that she said the only celebration I have left to throw for a community is my memorial (laughs) and that's why he's taking these photographs like this picture of the three of them in the flower field will be it will be in a frame at Gamry's memorial. You shut your smart, stupid face. 
<laughs> also, though, you know the scene where Gamory shows Heejin the video of her showing those papers that mm-hmm. was like proof that her father fought in the Korean Independence War? Yes. And so the reason she was able to go and talk about her dad and be memorialized in video was because Dusik had set it up. So I almost feel like he's also memorializing her for himself so that he can always have a part of her. And I think that's sweet. (laughs) I'm not sure he realizes that's what he's doing yet. Like, I agree with you. I'm not, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure he realizes he's doing that yet. But once she's gone, he'll certainly be happy that he did. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like someone who just went through like a lot of loss and awfulness. And who was always like kind of alone. I think it makes sense that like whether he realizes it or not, he tries to make people more permanent in his life somehow. Whether that's by making himself indispensable or by making sure that they're as as documented as possible. Sure. In a physical way. But what is there to say about the fact that he's always behind the camera? Mm, until the very end when he steps out in front of it with his fiance. Yeah. I didn't think about it from that angle. That's another way that he (laughs) keeps people at arm's length, though. Like, oh, look at me. I'm at this party, but I'm the camera dude. Like, go over there. Yeah. It also goes back to that, the photo of Heejin and her family, right? That the grandfather took, but he was also behind the camera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, that is a really interesting way to think about that he is a spectator, right? He's not living his life. I mean, he he's able to enjoy some things in the present, like surfing, right? Mm-hmm. But like when it comes to relationships, it's not until the very end when he has opened him up him opened himself up fully to Heijin that the story ends with him standing in front of the camera with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Where he stepped back into his life again. Yeah. Speaking of cameras, I think it's interesting, given this debate that is the thread that runs through the show about class, about careers, about how people earn money and how much they earn, that Chief Hong is walking around with his camera after he sees the grandmothers and cataloging people who work with their hands. So it's like the beauty of Ganjin going hand in hand with people in the market, people who are fishermen, laborers, and finding beauty in that, mm-hmm. you know, that that is something that's consistent with his philosophy, right? That there is satisfaction and honor in earning money by working with your hands after coming from this catastrophic uh, these like catastrophic events from the investment world, which is the opposite of that. It's playing mm-hmm. with other people's money that they earned with their hands. So, yeah. all right. Enter director G. <laughs> <laughs> so spectacularly, I must say. <laughs> yes, I love that he catches him like the same way that he caught his earlier. I love that they, yeah, like they use a romantic trope. To kick mm-hmm. off the, the love triangle. <laughs> I thought that that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And he catches him by the camera, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I know we've covered this a lot. You know, we've mentioned in past podcasts, but this is the second in the trilogy of people 
falling almost into the water and being saved, right? Mm -hmm. And so this love triangle that's going to end up becoming a triangle of friendship where everybody's friendships mean something important to everybody and their arcs, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Chief Hong is going to turn to, like, Director Xi is key, as we talked about in the last podcast, to Chief Hong facing his past in many ways, both the security guard's son and his cousin, who is his young's widow. But also Chief Hong is going to save Director Xi because he's going to give him some really important advice, which is stop waiting to say something and go after the person you're in love with, right? Like he sees things for him that he's not able to like discern about his own feelings. Right, because it appeared as though he learned that lesson when he went to Heijin, but it's like, come on, buddy. And I think he does, I'm not saying he didn't care for her, but I think he was already in love with the writer. Well, yeah. You're still doing this, guy. Like, Yeah, he's headed, you know what I thought was so brilliant, beep, about that point. Right, because what Chief Hong says later on is, look, you didn't lose your appetite and get depressed like this when Heijin turned you down. So what's up with you, dude? Right. Like you like her. Right. You're more upset about your colleague leaving her job than you are your college crush turning down. But what I love in this episode is Director Xi on his own is always walking off in the wrong direction. (laughs) Right. He fall. Chief Hong tells him the directions and then he goes right instead of going left. And he tells him. You're an optimist with a bad sense of direction. (laughs) (laughs) And so Chief Hong not only has to point to him basically as if pointing him which way you should be going on this road and walk him there, but he's going to have to do that with Director Xi and his love life (laughs) (laughs) later on in this show. But I also think it's great that like if in the last episode we had Jury and Heijin bonding over their mutual uh, love of K-pop and this particular idol. They, they geek out about cameras and food. And just like Jury did not believe that Heijin had met June, Chief Hong doesn't believe that Director Xi knows this like famous food celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> I really like, I, we talk a lot about sort of the romanticist lens of this show and the two men sitting on the top of the hill looking out on the ocean. It's just... First of all, it's just beautiful to like to look at, right? That the show it really is, yeah. There, you know, the show really takes the time with the cinematography and the direction to really let us, like, you know, it's just two characters sitting on the top of a hill. Um, it's like something right out of like uh, you, the romanticist poets, like on the like moors in England, looking out on a hill. But I think it's interesting what director G says. It's okay to get lost. Or take the long route every now and then. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? I think that it's funny that that's so clear to to him. But like how that's a lesson that Heejin is still learning. Because she kind of went on that journey. That's how she found there too. Right? Mm -hmm. And well, I think it's funny that Dusik's response is like, well, I can't wait till there's self-driving cars for you. (laughs) <laughs> he's like that that to me was funny because for somebody who's always so you know it, it it sounds like something he'd be totally into right like yeah just follow the universe and see where it takes you yeah but he was like he was not all about it which i thought was funny i, I wasn't really sure why 
I feel like in some ways, Dushik's life is based on a routine, though. And I'm mm. not sure he is in a place to go too far out of that, if that makes sense. Like, it's different to yeah. play in the rain than it is to just randomly wander off into a new city. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think that makes sense. Like, it's he's very controlled in his own way. Right. In order to, I mean, I think he has to be that way to keep himself together. Yeah. Even outwardly, obviously. Yeah, he can't enjoy life. Yeah, no, that's right. He can't enjoy life by just exploring and letting it take him where he wants to go or where he might not even know that he wants to go. He has to do these things to atone for what he perceives he did wrong in the the world. Yeah, I think it's an interesting piece of advice when you think about what he says to Heijin at the end of the episode. Sometimes life's going to take I mean, because it's essentially saying the same thing, right? Sometimes you're going to get like director Xi ends up picking Ganjin because he got lost. And then he just and then he discovered a beautiful place and he's going to end up setting his television show there. And it's going to change a lot of people's it's going to be a catalyst for a lot of things, both in his life and other people's lives. And essentially what Chi Pong is saying at the end of, ep- end of the episode is like, sometimes when you bring an umbrella, it's going to rain, right? Like, so, and you're still going to get wet. So it's sort of this grappling with when the unexpected happens, how do you react? You know, and then the guys are just sitting there and then he's basically like, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> I just really like that character. He's great. What I like most about it is because I really hate when it's like the second lead. There's like, I don't, I, I don't like when there's like a ship war about the second lead and that it's confusing. Mm. And like, I don't like the ambiguousness. And like, so I, I thought that this was very clear in the sense that like you could really like him. <laughs> yeah. And you still weren't distracted from the greater story and where the heart of, the show lies. Yeah. Which and, is with Dusik and Heejin. <laughs> right. Because it is like both the actual love triangle and jealousy is introduced late. It lasts mm-hmm. for a very short run of episodes. And then he has far greater depth and meaning in the story than just mm-hmm. being the second lead who's the love, intri- like part of the love triangle. Yeah. So, yeah. Now... I, I also thought it was really interesting. It's and and I looked at it as kind of meta. This whole debate about fresh versus fermented fish, <laughs> something that you get right away and eat right away versus something that has to for, literally, you know, it's a chemical process ferment something you have to wait for. Which is this is a really excellent slow burn story. <laughs> and when he says the sick high, which is their ship name. <laughs> But it's also, you know, is fermented. I just was like, oh, I see you, Shin Ha-un, winking at the audience. Basically, <laughs> be patient. We're about to go through a rough patch. <laughs> All right. Talk to you about Misan absolutely throwing her friend under the bus and hiring the person that she knows everybody is gossiping about to be her sub at the school. Misan is so hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I love that everything she does though is in is in Heijin's best interest. She's not exactly. She's not manipulative. She's not trying to do something mean. She's you know, I think she's she's just trying to get her her ship to sail. 
Yeah. Let's, let's put these two together a little more and see what happens. It's amazing how her repeated bouts of diarrhea help so many ships sail in this episode. <laughs> You know, because if she didn't have it, we wouldn't have gotten this adorable math off and playing on the beach in the rain. (laughs) So we should be very grateful to her irritable bowel syndrome or whatever is going on. (laughs) Girl needs more fiber. (laughs) Uh, So, okay. Anybody have any thoughts about how hard Chief Hong goes on making fun of Heijin for saying that he liked her? He teases her so much about being like, don't, don't, don't think I'm staying too close to you because I like you. (laughs) I love it. His dance that he does for the children. Oh, my God. So, of course, him teasing her. I'm a big fan of bickering. (laughs) And I thought that that was well done. And and like I said before, it's like they needle each other. They, They like force each other to get to that next little ledge that they need to get to to get where they're going. I think it's like really interesting and defensive and over the top the way he's like, don't think, don't think I'm, I'm standing too close to you. Don't, don't think it's because she's like, dude, you're really teasing me a lot for like one little mistake. And he's like, yep. (laughs) And I plan to for a while. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's, he can't help it. Like it's, I, I think it bothers him that much that he has to like, he has to bring it up again. And he does that by joking as we all do. Right. Well, and you know, I always go back to this, but they haven't had, like, the two of them really haven't had that many or really any, especially healthy relationships. Like, they're coming at each other in this weird, like, middle school way. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm going to be mean to you because I love you. Yeah. <laughs> and tease you and tease you. Right. And, and if the more I tease you about it, then maybe the le- then you won't list again everything that actually is evidence about how I'm feeling. <laughs> you yeah. know, it is all a joke. Please think it's a joke. <laughs> there's <laughs> and don't there's, break my heart. <laughs> there's so many great details in this whole hilarious like dance <laughs> sequence <laughs> because this. Wait, is- what's your favorite dance move in this dance? Oh, it's definitely the like very stiff hip swing where oh. it seems like Kim Sun Ho's body can only move in what like right it's like his hips move but the rest of him like i can't even articulate but i'm just like how's your body doing that <laughs> that's so true i really like the the, the fist to forehead the, you know the little boop yes i love that <laughs> oh my god if i had learned about the importance of brushing my teeth as a child this way i think i would have had much better oral hygiene <laughs> as a child Dub same I also love that he does not, He's you know, because you would think, like, he's good with people, he's good with kids, he can come in and help with this. They actually go out of the way to say he's certified in recreation. (laughs) (laughs) What what does that even mean? I mean, it's the best running joke of the show. All the certifications. Absolutely. It's my favorite. And she's into it. (laughs) (laughs) She is into it. She's, like, super into it. And and, And what I love, what I realized, too, is that in this episode, he knows the dance choreography and she's trying to keep up. And in the next episode for the K-pop, she's the one who's the secret K-pop part of that group's army, right? And she knows all the dance moves and he's trying to keep up. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's like a really great point that the, they are starting to like back each other up. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, we're bickering. We're going to bicker on the side when it's just us. We have this whole thing going. But when, you know, push comes to shove, when we're in front of a crowd, like, I got your back. 
I'm yeah. going to follow along. I'm going to do my best. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to back you up. <laughs> and there's a lot of little, like, great details. Like, the when her hand, when he's hold, when they're holding the giant model of teeth, the way his face exhibits internal screaming when she touches his hand is so delicious. <laughs> no, the best part, the best part is, is the close-up where you can't see their hands. And then she goes, and then you vibrate it like this. And he looks at her. He looks at her. I'm like, was that? I, I think that was, I literally think that was intentional. <laughs> but that, 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 that Haitian is subjected. The children of the village. God bless them. <laughs> been, as kids do, heard everything their parents are gossiping about. And basically, what I love is every single question they ask, the answer is eventually going to be yes. Did you kiss? Do you like him? Are you in love? Are you getting married? All of the answers are yes. Kids always know. They kids just always know. know. What I love about that is, is even, I'm sure they did hear it from their parents, but even if they didn't, two grownups have come together to present something. So obviously, <laughs> that's oh. just how kids are, too. It's so true. I remember being in like first grade and being like, is the principal like together with my teacher because they were standing next to each other? <laughs> just like banana stuff that little kids. Yeah. Well, and they're like, okay, so apparently she like spent the night at his house and now they're in school together. So like, what? <laughs> I mean, and then you've got, and you've got this very clever meta moment where Hei Jin leans over to Chief Hong and is like looking at our other love triangle. And it's like, I sense a love triangle brewing here. Meanwhile, he met Director Xi in this episode. <laughs> and Director Z is just around the corner about to kick their love triangle in a high gear at the end of the next episode. It's like this great meta moment. You know, obviously, we've got this other love triangle going on simultaneously during this classroom dental hygiene <laughs> lesson where you've got Cho Hee trying to deflect Young Guk's attentions while mm -hmm. she wore the bracelet, the friendship bracelet. That she shares with Ha Zhang, knowing she would see her that day. And then you've got Ha Zhang, who has dressed, like, it breaks my heart the way she dressed up mm -hmm. to Ugh. feel prettier because she feels like, God, what if my husband, uh, he's like back with this old love, right? Like the way that she dresses up to try and look nice because mm -hmm. of the insecurity she's feeling as. Mm -hmm. It's been 15 years later and I'm a mom and everybody keeps talking about how pretty Cho he is, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, it kind of hurts my heart. Yeah, no, I, I actually had a hard time from her perspective. It, it was just like really crappy. <laughs> yeah. And I think so. One of the things that Shin Ha Eun as a writer, which we talked about with toothaches in the past, is she is able to talk about... <laughs> She's able to use terminology and dental problems as metaphors for life. <laughs> so what we have is Ha Zhang is clenching her teeth and has all of this inner turmoil, right? And all of that teeth clenching and grinding her teeth at night has now caused a pain in her face that that is making like makes her even wonder if she has a toothache. But her pain 
what Heijin says is it is important to find out where the pain is coming from. Do you guys have any thoughts about how that explains what's going on with many characters in this story? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it especially speaks to her love triangle because, I mean, there's so many misdirections that we can talk about. What we know is that her angst is about her husband looking elsewhere, but that's not really the, that's not actually what will be of issue. (laughs) I guess is what I think of. Yeah. I mean, she's worried about, she's, she's looking at her husband with, her ex-husband with Chohi. She's worried that her, you know, that he likes her, that something's going to happen with that. Right. She's feeling old and unattractive and frumpy. Right. Like Mm -hmm. very common middle-aged woman mom moment. And there's not like, the misplaced pain is that Cho He is actually in love with her. <laughs> right? And and like same with like Hei Jin and Chi Pong. They have this constant debate. You know, when Hei Jin is like, I need an input and an output. Your lifestyle doesn't make sense, right? It, it, what she needs to know is the source of the pain. Mm-hmm. And once she knows it, all of a sudden, they're able to really find a balance, right? Because she, what, what she can't understand is, and what he refuses to explain is the why. Like, why did you start living this way when mm-hmm. you did, right? And I also think, like, if, if I, you know, this may be a little bit of a stretch, but if we're talking about misplaced pain, both his friend's widow and the security guard's wife take their pain and project it onto Dushik that it's all his fault. And that also causes like a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really interesting idea about misplaced pain moving, you know, you think it's here, but it's actually, you think it's your tooth, but it's actually be like going on in your face and it's a muscular thing and not a problem with your tooth and how that is kind of like a metaphor for what's going on with a lot of people. I mean, you can almost draw that back to the first scene in the village where she she sees Bora crying and she's like, oh, my God, your tooth because she's, she's holding the tooth sobbing. And so she goes to her mouth to like inspect it. But it, it's really her friend who actually endured the tooth loss. <laughs> but it's funny that pain isn't like the expression of, of the grief and the pain is not always what you expect or whom you expect it from. Yeah, or also this idea of having this turmoil inside, grinding your teeth, and, mm-hmm. it, and it starts to cause a spasm in your face. And that makes me think of when Dushik is drunk and he's crying and Heijin says to him, you know, that can cause facial paralysis, right? And this whole idea of a mask that you wear that because of everything that you're holding in, right? Mm-hmm. And how that is like paralyzing, mm-hmm. right? In like a, a metaphorical way. It's just really fascinating all of that. I never knew that like dental problems could be such wonderful metaphors for life. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Talk to me about the diarrhea scene. I mean, you know, it's a funny thing, again, that I've I've seen in a few K-dramas 
you know, poops are off the table in terms of like a romantic (laughs) spark. (laughs) Igniting a romantic spark because, and it's like such a clever thing. It's like, you know, if somebody can see you at your worst, at your most like vulnerable (laughs) and and still see the person you are and find that worthy (laughs) and want to know more. I mean, if that's not love, I don't know what is. <laughs> oh my God. When when he's like, why are you here at the pharmacy? And then, <laughs> and then the pharmacist comes up and it's like, here's your anti-diarrhea. Diarrhea medication. Oh like if there may as well be like, you know, one of those like Target loudspeakers. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Diarrhea medication is here. Oh my God. I died. But you know. Yoon Scholl's the type of dude that runs out after her and is like, you know what? I have diarrhea too. This is the ghost. <laughs> what? Yes, the evil don't let the evil come out. <laughs> that was my favorite part of the advice. Like the very practical, like just sh- don't stop it. Just let just let it go out. Stay Take hydrated. Stay hydrated. <laughs> It was, like, how can a scene about diarrhea be so sweet? <laughs> <laughs> Look, Yoon Shoal is like, honestly, I don't know if there's a dude in real life who would do that. <laughs> he's, he's a good egg, man. <laughs> yeah, he really is. And again, you know, what's funny is that they then have this the conversation about, like, what are you interested in? And he's basically like, oh, I love historical K-drama. Right. And I love these like meek, mild, right, where nobody really says their feelings and it's all subtext. And me son's like watching it from her couch and is like, dude, there's no way you're going to like me then. Right. <laughs> but again, like Chief Hong and Hei Jin, those are surface differences. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a lot of things in common that are a lot more important that we'll kind of go on the journey with them about. Are we ready? Are we ready to go to? Meal number two, which I like to call math date. <laughs> yeah, because earlier you, we talked about how he did is calculating. But <laughs> a real calculator is too sick. He sure got her to buy him a meal after all, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> oh. So but his face when she drives like miles out of town. To, he's just like. Oh, do we really have to go this far? Like, are you that embarrassed to be with me? You know, like, <laughs> all right. But let's talk about when she sits down. And it is something that Chief Hong will remark to her father. She immediately says, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. That takes, not everybody's willing to be that upfront about making mistakes. It's one of the things I love about Haitian. Mm-hmm. And he's basically like, okay, you don't have to apologize for your opinion. But, and again, I don't think she just means I was factually wrong, right? Talk to me about when she asks him to do the math problems. I think he was excited to do math for her. I really do. <laughs> me too. Yeah. He was like, watch me. I have a certification in this too. <laughs> <laughs> And they're playing, they're playing that, that like Spanish guitar, I am Chief Hong music while he does math. 
Oh, I can just see his like, the, you know, the little gears turning in his head. He's like, yes, this is how I'm going to get her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And when the way he's just like, yeah, bring it. I'll do another one. And he's calling her. He's like, you're so childish. Like, this is so ridiculous. But he's clear. The way they both, he loves that he is showing off for her. And she is so into it. It is so amazing. It is like a turn on to watch him do math and And how smart he is. (laughs) No, he's like, oh, my God, her love language is math. (laughs) It's easy for me. (laughs) Yeah. And then then she can't do the problem when it's it's her turn. (laughs) Okay, but how much do you love that they just get chastised by the server? (laughs) Yeah, the lady's like, well, okay. Yeah. And, you know, what I love about this is that, you know, obviously we're going to have a lot of dialogue to unpack in a minute. But this scene and the beach scene, those are moments of real connection where they're just having a blast with each other. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like real emotional. Like, it's just what they're feeling. And that is they really enjoy being around each other. And right. And they're just like in their own world and drawing, like the waitress says, like kids all over a tablecloth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like doing math problems. Right. But then, then it like, then the dialogue, tur- then the scene takes a turn. He's basically like, are you satisfied now? And she's basically like, no, I'm more confounded than ever. Because then how does this make sense with how you live your life? And what she says is, Live an honest life. Reap what you sow. Talk to me about that. I mean, I think it's, she's had this thing like instilled in her from her soul lifestyle that it's like equating like moral correctness with the kind of hard work that results in status, currency, moving up the ladder. It's a, you know, she has that very narrow understanding of success but not only of success but of what is your duty as a citizen yeah yeah she doesn't she doesn't understand that that's not actually a definition of morality you know it it has no it it's not related to it at all yeah well and there's so many layers to it right because there's He's not living by society's rules, right? Mm -hmm. He went to the most prestigious university in the country and he's living, he's working odd jobs and earning minimum wage. So Mm -hmm. I think, I don't think that that's an, I think that that's a pretty realistic question people would ask. I mean, people ask me like, what are you going to do with your law degree? And I'm like, I I don't really want to use it. Is that okay? You know, like, I mean, there is, that is something that is a conversation. This, that whole time when I was watching the scene, I was like, you know how many times in real life people have asked me that? Like, just because you earn something and you may decide that it doesn't make you happy, but that doesn't fit with what like society expects. Mm-hmm. No, the whole idea of what we are going to do when we grow up, like, assumes that it's always going to be the same thing till we die. Like, yeah, is it kind of do? shitty that you have to decide when you're so young and you don't know anything? Yeah, it's it's not great. But also the assumption that you should, why would you not be doing the thing that would earn the most amount of money? Mm -hmm. That is very much a part of living in any capitalist country, right? Absolutely. So, Mm -hmm. but then there's, there's some interesting deeper layers to it, right? He actually is living his life 
because he thinks he's reaping what he sowed. He thinks he made a lot of mistakes. He gave all of his money away to the person that he thinks was harmed because of his mistakes. Mm -hmm. And now he refuses basically to like earn a profit. And when she says like live an honest life, he actually isn't honest with many of the people in his life, including her up until the very end about why he's doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of like interesting layers to it. But I think Haitian is basically in this conversation, like she's representing convention. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of what unfolds later, following all the way through why he like grabs her hand is like he's challenging that like Chief Hong as a character is challenging convention, particularly in a capitalist society. And and I think this is one of their one of many realist with a big R and romanticist with a big R debates, because then what he says is if your definition of output is money and success. I must look like an awfully inefficient individual. Money and success aren't the only things in life. B, any thoughts about that? I'm so glad that's true. <laughs> Just <laughs> meaning that that is wrong because I feel like right now I look like an awfully inefficient individual. I mean, it's it's coming from such a place of pain for him. It's also interesting, and you had mentioned this earlier, it's not like he doesn't know those things. He's had those, and he's chosen a different way. And so I think all of this, this whole conversation, everything going round and round at this meal, just leads her to constantly think, as she's putting in her little box of you reap what you sow, what has he sown that this is what it looks like? You know, I think she connects everything with, Okay, because she's so hardworking and she earned her way through and she did all that, that she's making that one-on-one comparison to so many other people. You know, what did he do? What steps did he take that this is what it looks like? Especially when she finds out he came from, you know, Seoul University and he's so super smart. And it's like, wait, this he doesn't have to be where he is. It's not like he is incapable. He, he chose this and that makes even less sense to her. Yeah, because he's not explaining the reason. Like, so when she says there's an input, there's an output, there's something missing here. Like, she's right. (laughs) You know, like when he did go to Seoul National University, he did get swept up in the expected course of things and opt instead of being an engineer, went to investment banking as very, very smart people to go to prestigious universities end up being funneled into the professions that earn a ton of money. Right. Like he did get swept up all in all of that. He had all of that. He had all of that money. He had all of that success. And he had all of that. And he found out he went off a cliff and none of that mattered because horrible things still happened. Right. And he gave all of his money away to try and fix it as best as he could. But there's some things that money can't fix or bring back, you know? So like when he's talking about those things aren't everything in life. It's coming from like a deep personal experience with how much that's true. Now, the realist would point out, no, of course it didn't fix the father's like health, but all that money did pay for better care and paid off his son's student loans so that he can have the career that he has in television, right? right. So like, you know, there's a romanticist and realist back and forth in the show where I feel like the 
the the char- the show kind of arrives at like a happy medium and isn't fully take one side or the other, if that makes sense. Um, well, I think it's like acknowledging that the world that Heejin comes from exists and operates very much like that. But that isn't the end all be all. So it's almost like when they come down to the seaside, they're like crossing into a different world that is equally real. And so it's kind of like it's saying like, yeah, money is important. Status is important, but it's not everything and not everywhere is that equated to, you know, success in terms of a happy life and everything else that entails. Yeah. And it's also really highlighting, you know, we focus a lot, understandably, because it is the pervading mystery on Chief Hong's journey. But Heijin's journey is is untangling what satisfies her and her self-worth and her career and be, and becoming this important member of the community and earning money, like kind of honorably from her hard work and helping people and untangling that from what do your friends in the city think about what you're doing and what mm-hmm. are their expectations? Because she's going to get tested at the end of the show. Because they're going to get the, sh- the show's going to the narrative will give her an opportunity to go back and take that prestigious job of a professorship in Seoul. And she's going to come to the decision to turn it down. And so this conversation is sort of previewing the journey that Heijin has to go on. Like, it's not all about success and money, because if she ultimately thought that it was, she would have returned to Seoul at the end of the show. Yeah. And I think that's partially why she is so curious about why he leads the life he does, having gone to such a prestigious university because it's like what she learned you know from what we see with her that flashback with her ex-boyfriend is she was told there was only one way to go about things and it it crushed her but she prevailed and she was able to meet the demands of this world that put such harsh demands on her you know she did it and now she's seeing that maybe that was not the only way like does he know something that i don't know like like am i wrong in this little reality that i live in like is is there someone else that i can be that's i don't know you know it's like yeah yeah there's more there might be more and is that (laughs) just a message to us because that's more our world than his yeah i mean that's what it's saying you know we this is so haitian's arguments are so in line with our world Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I feel like the whole message is not only to get her to think about it, but she's the audience insert in that way of, hey, guys, like maybe this isn't the best way to go about it. Or not the only way, at least. Right. It's kind of like sometimes at different points in the story, it's, you know, the writer, it seems like Shin Ha-un is speaking to the audience through character. And in this first half... It's Chief Hong kind of doing the teaching and Heijin is taking it in. And in the second half, it's Heijin doing the teaching on being emotionally vulnerable and letting yourself feel things about grief. And then it feels like Shin Ha-un is talking to the audience through Heijin. So what he says is happiness, self-contentment, love, big paw, change the subject. Life Life isn't a mathematical equation. It doesn't have a clear answer. There's no quote unquote right answer either. You're given a problem. It's up to you to solve it. 
thoughts on that? I think that it's about choice. Yeah. And we, we discuss that a lot. But you have options in front of you. Now, I mean, I believe in right and wrong as far as like moral choices. But yeah, there's there are plenty of things that you come across where it's just a choice. There's nothing inherently better or worse about it. It's just which road do you want to go down? Yeah. It also, just looking at who the model for Chief Hong is, it's also something that like, truly Henry David Thoreau would say, like the transcendentalists believe that your own individual moral compass is more important than what society says. And like he lived that out by like acts of civil disobedience and writing about civil disobedience, which would later like refusing to pay a poll tax, which would later inspire like Gandhi and MLK. And he was talking about just because society says something's right And you don't, you need to listen to your own individual conscience. And if you think something isn't right, like it's up to you, you are the standard of your, of, of like you are your own moral compass. And so I think there's like that really interesting kind of historical layer to it that is the model for this character that, that the Shin Ha'un is playing with. But I think that this is also like just on like a character level, what both of them have to deal with. Each of them have a different problem. Haitian has to figure out what she's going to do with her career and what is important to her in her lifestyle, which she is going to very much recalibrate what's important to her in her career and the way she wants to live her life by the end of the story. Chief Hong's going to have to grapple with, how am I going to open up to somebody to be in a relationship emotionally and talk about all of the things that are in the past? Like, And it's up to each of them how they're going to solve it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's another way he's indirectly giving advice that he's going to have to take. <laughs> yes. Well, I think what's very interesting is both this scene and the walking in the rain, sometimes you have to bring an umbrella, are both not only coming from his life experience, but also what they are both pieces of advice that he's going to have to follow himself. And as we talked about at the beginning, it's not always easy to follow your own advice. <laughs> Um, tell me about how we have the, the flip side. Now she's going to try and clean the sauce off him's lips. Now we know why he's freaking out. <laughs> Wait, because they kissed? Because the, the camera angle, now, now that you have, we have seen the flashback, the camera angle shows her face leaning in exactly the way that it did for the kiss. Oh my god! And he's like, well, "Don't do that." Okay, let's get the bill. Let's go. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, they walk out. It's raining. He has the umbrella. It is very important tracing in this drama who has the umbrella and who is standing <laughs> under the umbrella with who at what point. But right now, the umbrella is in Chi Fong's hand. Tell me what what you think is going on. When, she, when she's like, let's, here, I'll drive you home. And he grabs her hand and runs. Ooh. I think it's like, he knows that if he, like, I think it's a thought that crossed his mind. And he knows if he spends one more second thinking about it, he won't do it. <laughs> so he does it. He just does it. <laughs> and it's like what we were saying before, it's that little moment of freedom where he thinks he can be somebody else and he's taking it for that 
that little moment. Yeah, it's impulse. It's like it's like right before the laundry scene when she's going to walk away and he grabs the strap of her purse. Mm-hmm. It, it's like it's just this like reflex because it's like what he's feeling. And it's like these these moments every time they inch toward intimacy. It's, you know, what Shin Ha-un says is it's courage. It's like he's acting on this impulse before his head gets in the way. Mm-hmm. It's them being magnets. And I think it's like weather does that to people sometimes where it's like, you know how like you had a bad day. You're like, I can eat this candy bar. And it's like, it's raining. Well, I cannot go to work today. <laughs> you know, it's like the, this little like excuse that you give yourself that it's like, oh, it's it's one of those days. So I can do this. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. yeah, it would not have happened without the rain. I also think on some level. There is, there is a deeper urgency to this conversation. I, I mean, I think Chi Pong, as he does, is willing to articulate and debate with anybody the merits of his lifestyle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there is an urgency to convincing her on some level, right? Because Shin Ha-un said that we're free to interpret. <laughs> and we can conclude that at some point, given all of the things that he is given into the kiss and tried to help her and all of the things that that at some level he's already in love with her. And somewhere in the back of his mind is this earlier conversation where basically she's like, well, according to my social position and your social position, we don't get we don't get together. So if he doesn't shake this conformity, this adhering to convention about the way life is supposed to work and what you're supposed to do, according to the way society expects things, then they're never, like, they're not going to get together. Mm-hmm. Because this if is she's... the first time he's had stakes. Yes. When trying to convince mm-hmm. somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole exercise is trying to convince her to take risks and shake off this conformity to the rules. And, mm-hmm. and what is more symbolic of that than instead of staying under the safety of your umbrella to run out in the middle of a rainstorm. Mm-hmm. This is a total aside. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever done that, but it is extremely therapeutic. Yes. If you have nothing to do sometime and it's raining, just walk out there and stand in it and feel it. And it's amazing. Yeah. Swimming in the rain, swimming in the ocean, obviously when there isn't lightning. <laughs> <laughs> But swimming in the ocean, and this is also, I think, Beep, I'm so glad you said that because I think that there's something that's very, and again, I'm going to be a geek about this, romanticist with a big R, because this is all about feeling. This isn't logical, Mm -hmm. right? Why are you running in the rain when you have a perfectly good umbrella and a car right there and you're going to get soaking wet? There's nothing about this that's logical. It's about feeling. And like, I remember as a kid, being in the ocean with my grandmother and it would start to rain and you just feel like your senses are alive in, in a way that like, you know, is be therapeutic is like a great word, right? You just mm-hmm. feel alive in the moment. I don't know if it's because of the elements or it's something that you're not supposed to do or all I of those things. You're not supposed to do it. I, yeah. I really think it's like the freedom and then like it's like you're not supposed to do it, but you're doing it. And, you know, it's not that bad. It's actually kind of fun. It's actually like I remember I did the summer program when I was in high school in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. 
And it was this, it was in the summer, like I just said, and it would rain almost every afternoon in like big downpours. And it was so fun to run through it. And there was this hill where we'd like roll down the hill and we'd all just be like soaking wet. Like, I don't know what it was about it. I guess like, yeah, you're not supposed to do it, but yeah. And it's spontaneous. <laughs> it's it's spontaneous, not something you planned, right? Haitian mm-hmm. is a big planner, right? This is this is completely spontaneous. And it's absolutely about being in the moment because, you know, chances are 20 minutes from now, you're going to regret that your clothes are soaking wet and your purse is soaking wet and your phone's in your purse and all and of your, this. Your socks are doing that. <laughs> oh, the squelch. The squelch. <laughs> Yeah, so all, all of it is about being in a moment and not worrying about what's going to come next. Before we dig into what he says, just tell me your thoughts about visuals of this scene. I mean, it's gorgeous. And they're like kids. Yeah. I love the slow motion. <laughs> I love how she pushes his ass down in the ocean every time they do that. <laughs> He's like splash, splash, and she's just like always, boom, you're going down. It happens the same way in the engagement thing. And he's like, oh, so this is how it's going to be later. <laughs> I mean, and it's also, it is so beautiful. It looks like it's... It's and I don't know what they captured, like if or what is, you know, if the sky was really pink or whatever. But like it's it's like this pink sky that's like in a storm. You've got the pink of her dress. You have the rain, everything about the way it's staged and the cinematography. It's beautiful. And like Mm -hmm. the closing image, all of it under the umbrella is one of the like iconic images from the show. It's it looks like a painting. It's just really beautiful. And I don't, you know, we've talked before, really important emotional moments in this show happen outside in nature. I feel like when I was watching this, that I was like, especially on rewatch after we've talked about all of sort of the romanticist ideas and themes that like Mr. Keating from Dead Poets Society would just... If he were at the window watching them, he would be so happy. <laughs> like, you know, at the end of the movie, him just watching that and walking away silently. <laughs> because this is like if you watched a poet society, Mr. Keating is like the the chief hong in this moment. You know, he's like, run around with your shirts off and paint your faces and scream <laughs> romantic poetry into the elements. You know, like there's something that is so classically like whether it's like Lord Byron and being out in the rain, right? There's just something that is like, or like Jane Eyre hearing, going out on the moors in the rain and hearing the voice of the person she loves and like nature's talking to her. There's like a whole tradition, right? Of like interacting with nature this way. And they're like playing with all this imagery, but it's not a coincidence that every really important emotional connection that happens, and this is one of them between these two characters, happens outside. Mm-hmm. I love that he's also questioning in small ways as he's trying to prove to her, you know, or, or at least get her to realize there are more ways that going about it. There's not necessarily a right or wrong in every situation. And he's utilizing these things where societally we've agreed, like, yeah, you don't do that. And he's going, but why not? 
Mm-hmm. So to that end, what does Heijin say about this? I feel damp and uncomfortable. I'll get a cold. Any thoughts about that and that sort of life view? I think it's saying that, like, she still assumes that to take liberties with life and run in the rain, there's a consequence. That it's it's not what she's supposed to do, and she's going to have to eventually pay for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes with that closed fist imagery of their conversation. Yeah, and it's also the moment is wearing off. She was in the present, and now that's the past. And now, oops, like, we have to deal with it. Yeah, I also think about how when she was a child on the beach, her mother was like, don't run. You know, her mother who was sick. It's about managing risk, right? All of her lists, all of her clothes as armor. When she says, I'm somebody who plans for 99 years, you make plans to manage risk, to control things. It is the opposite of running in the rain and living in the moment. Mm-hmm. Beep, read to us what Chief Hong says in response. He says, you're bound to meet unexpected situations in life. Even if you use an umbrella, you'll end up getting drenched. Just put your hands up and welcome the rain. Mm. First, let's unpack everything that we now know is behind those words for him. I mean, I think unexpected situations could not express what he went through. There, I mean, there are no words to express that any better. The trauma that he's gone through. Yeah. He was not prepared for that. And yet there's no way to prepare for that. No. And he followed the rules, right? He went to university. He got, he worked really hard. He won the scholarship. He followed his older friend's lead, right? He took the, you know, the, the high powered, high earning investment banking job. He worked really, really hard, so hard that everybody lost touch with him from where he was from, right? Like this beloved family now. He lost touch with. He did everything that he's supposed to do, right? And then we think back to that conversation he had in episode two. His life went off a cliff, even though he did everything that he was supposed to. Right. And in, in the short term, she's uh, she's going back to this and you go back to that line, you know, of you reap what you sow. These are things that that we know in common language. He did so, and he sowed well. And in the short term, he reaped not what he sowed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot of confusion there. Yeah. And he's, I think he's trying to, like, I mean, I think, as you said, there's a there's a deeper emotional stakes to this. Because if he doesn't shake her from this convention, nothing's ever going to happen between them. And I'm not saying that, that he, that's explicitly what he's thinking about, but I do think it's why he argue so passionately to her, but he also has really hard-earned wisdom. And Mm -hmm. he's trying to, not without opening up about it, he's trying to be like, look, you can do everything that you're supposed to, and you can have that umbrella in your bag ready for the rain, and sometimes the rain goes sideways, and you're going to get drenched anyway. So then what what are you going to do? He's trying to help her to... Not necessarily prepare for, but to do more of what she wants because, hey, maybe that cliff is coming no matter what. Mm -hmm. And also, I think he's also like trying to soothe himself in a way that like she's, you know, because if, if she's completely right, 
then he's worthless, kind of. That he mm. he got what he deserved, and that's that's what it'll always be. And so he has to believe that there's hope beyond that, even if he's like not really connecting that. I also think he believes in many ways that his all those things are what led to and even perhaps caused what happened. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to see that for her by her assuming that they're mm. the end all be all. Oh, good point. All right. So they return to this common thread between them about who's running a fever. <laughs> <laughs> the fevers in their pants. Keep- up. <laughs> all right. Wow. Wow. Okay. He puts his hand on her forehead. The direction and the editing uses the thing that they do with Heijin where the audience is squarely in her point of view because it closes up on her eyes. And we get the flash of what she is remembering, what is triggered by his hand on her face again, that she kissed him. (laughs) All right. The journey their two faces go on from him being like her looking at him expectedly and kind of hopefully, and him looking at her with like affection. And then he closes down and he, and she says, so Chief Hong, are you sure nothing happened that night? And he's like, no. Yeah, and now happened. it's a test. It is. It's a test. So, so he gets another shot. Like he just, ra- he just ran in the rain with her, right? He just felt all of these things. He has another opportunity. It's kind of, oddly enough, it's raining, so that's the opposite. But it is kind of the cold light of day after everything that they've been through. He's kind of been put back into that position of, like, I don't deserve any of this. Plus, he doesn't know how she's going to react. If he admits to it, she might be like, wow, that was the hugest mistake ever. I can't believe that. You know, I mean, he's been getting hit pretty bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think it's just like, I mean, running in the rain is one thing. Saying that, yes, actually something did happen is opening up a whole different kind of chaos that he can't predict. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel safe the way that running in the rain does. Like, he allows himself some liberties, Mm -hmm. but not ones that have any lasting impact on his life. Yeah, Yeah, at least when he was running in the rain, he actually had the umbrella as a backup plan. (laughs) He's got nothing here. He's he's diving on a parachute. Yeah, I mean, grabbing her hand and running in the rain, that's his heart, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's what he's feeling, and he just runs with it. This is his head rules over his heart. And I want to go back to another excerpt from that interview with Shin Ha-un. She says... He reads the poem, The Gatekeeper, to Heijin, and pauses at, quote, that's why it's my job to deny my love, end quote. It was his heart that he could neither confess nor deny his love. So there is, like, movement. Here he's denying it. And he's Mm -hmm. like, no, it didn't happen. Nothing happened. And he's shutting it down. And it's like... Gonna open up a whole other can of worms because now imagine you're her and you remember it happened and you went on that limb and you kissed the guy and he kissed you back and then he pretends that it didn't happen. Now she knows how he felt. (laughs) Yeah. 
except this is intentional, right? He, she knows that he's full of it. She later says to me, so, and he denied it happening, but I could tell that he, that that wasn't true. So she knows he's full of it. And, you know, the episode ends with the two of them under the umbrella together. But as soon as it opens to the next episode, she walks away and he's left alone in the rain under an umbrella. Right. He's trying to manage the risk. He's under the umbrella, but he's alone. Mm -hmm. Alone again. Mm -hmm. Naturally. (laughs) (laughs) It's really fascinating to watch how he struggles with intimacy throughout uh-huh. this whole episode, this like stop and start, uh, like leans towards her, pulls back. Anytime that she's going to hold him accountable for it with words, he pulls back. So that brings us to the epilogue. Shin Ha-un is a master of epilogues, if I may say so. Yeah. It always brings something new into the story where you're like, wait, what? What did mm. I just watch? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it kind of brings things together or opens up something new where it, it's a different kind of mystery for you. And so now we see him. And of course, we know he's been going to Seoul to go to therapy. That's what he did when they went to Seoul earlier in the, what was it, episode three, I think. Mm-hmm. And so he's still doing that. The therapist asks if he's still having the same dream. And he responds that he is. Now, we see him have this dream, which is not great. He's running everywhere in the darkness and is all of a sudden, you know, grabbed from behind by a bloody hand. I think that adds a lot of credence to some of the ideas about death and murder or different things that may have happened. And it's all just kind of like, whoa, who is that? Why are they bleeding? Like, what, what's going on? But he clearly has had a massive trauma. And then that wraps back around to what you were saying before, Cece. He wakes up from that nightmare but he goes back to sleep because she's there. Yeah. I love it so much. It's so real, too. It's so real to have another person there grounding you when something mm-hmm. like that happens versus just waking up and being like, it's either just dark or you're kind of confused or whatever. But he looks over and it's like, no, there's a solid, real individual who, whether I want to admit it or not, I trust. So I'm safe. Mm-hmm. I'm and not I'm alone just again. Lay back down. Yeah, he's not alone. And I, I like you know the middle of the night when you wake up. I don't know if this happens to you guys. It's like the anxieties that I feel during the day are like ten thousand times more impactful at nighttime. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I think it has to do something with the the brain chemistry of when you're like waking up from sleep. But it, I can imagine like waking up like that. And how different it would be to kind of like have that like reality touchstone that the world is not falling apart, actually. That person's sleeping. Everything's fine. (laughs) I mean, it's such a beautiful scene. And just kind of like a peek as to like what they will mean to each other. Yeah. And there's so much really powerful symbolism. So he's in therapy, right? And after he says he has the nightmare, there's this darkness that creeps from the edges of the screen until onto him, until it blacks out. Mm -hmm. Then he's alone in the darkness. Now, we know that this now, that this recurring nightmare is him having to face himself asking, do you deserve to be happy? That's like the recurring nightmare that he has. 
And when he wakes up, there is pointedly sunlight on his face. And it's the same light and dark imagery they play with at the beginning of, I think it's episode 12, when they're together. And there's this dream sequence where he's playing with her in the yard and the water and the watermelon. And it's so like gauzy sunlight. And then he closes his eyes and he wakes up and he's in the darkness. And so it's using this sort of like light and dark to kind of represent what is going on inside of him, which Shin Ha-un had said in the interview we read at the top of the podcast. She has to use these because because his trauma is the mystery. She has to use these epilogues to reveal to us some of what he is going through, even if we don't know the cause. And I think it's really important because he's so sometimes emotionally evasive with Mm -hmm. Heijin that if the audience didn't have that empathy, that there's, there's something really hard going on, even if we don't fully understand what it is, then like, I think it's really important for the story, the way it unfolds that we empathize with him. Otherwise we'd be like, why the hell did you just like tell her that that didn't happen? Do you know what I mean? This looks wishy-washy. Right. In his actions and his words, like what he's been doing throughout. If we didn't get those glimpses into his psyche and his past and what, whatever little pieces we get, he wouldn't be as sympathetic. Yeah. And I think, you know, being alone in the darkness always reminds me of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, right? It, it's when you're alone in the dark, that's when doubt creeps in. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot about the way they show him constantly in his nightmare, alone in the darkness. And he only has, he, when he turns around, it's, it's himself expressing doubt. Why do you deserve this? But then, you know, when he wakes up to somebody next to him, it's also really careful how they stage things, right? At this point, they're next to each other, but they're far apart. He's facing towards her. She's facing away. And they sort of start playing with the next time they fall asleep, right? In the same room, they're going to be facing. Like, they're always playing with, like, who's facing who, who's physically getting closer, obviously, to, like, the last they are asleep, very close together, facing one another in the sunlight of morning. So they're playing with like a lot of this imagery, but I think a lot of it is like waking up from a nightmare that is all of your past trauma to finding solace in the person next to you kind of goes back to the main quote from Thoreau that Shin Ha-un put in her script book, the only remedy for love is to love more. I know. Bob, this was so fun. I hope you come back and we'll we'll pick another angsty episode or maybe like the fun, a fun dating episode so we can flail about all that K-drama gives us that American television doesn't. <laughs> oh, screw American television. I don't want you. <laughs> You're dead to me. Just like your characters. <laughs> oh my God, it's so right. Wow. Oh, thanks for coming. I hope you come back. Yes. <laughs> All right. For the next podcast, you can look forward to us covering episode six. Just a reminder, you can reach us on our website, streamingbanshees.com or on Twitter at TV Banshees. Until then, we hope that you learn to stop drinking. I mean, sorry. (laughs) We hope that because you may meet unexpected situations, you just put your hands up and welcome the rain. We'll see you soon.